Cradleine Network. My name is Conrad, I'm Tom Fred Fox. This is the 231st episode of Space Spitter 2000, a podcast where two Americans try to make sense of the UK's own galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD, one month of progs at a time. This episode, we're covering 2000 AD for December 1990, progs 708 to 711. 711, buddy. This time, the year's ending, so it's time to clear the decks. We're finishing up. Time flies. Solo. Anderson side division. And it's going to be action-packed and emotional, buddy. Oh, yeah. No, this one... Got some... That was rough. Got some feels here, friend. God. If you want to read along with us, you'll find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, The Complete Case, Files 15, Anderson, The Sci-Files, Volume 2, and 2000 AD Extreme Edition 14 and 19. And if you're ready to go... Let's reminisce about comics we've already talked about, Fox. Oh, gosh. <laughs> see, from a different point of view, like goddamn Obi-Wan Kenobi telling us about our mutilated dad. Oh. <laughs> by going to 301 Judge Dredd. Oh, man. Mr. Maybe and what he did during the Necropolis. That's right. Script robot John Wagner and Garth Ennis. Art robot Anthony Williams, Mike Hadley, and Carlos Escara. Letting robot... Tom frame. So we're talking, oh like you said, what <clears throat> PJ maybe did near Dear Necropolis Part Two. John Wagner, Anthony Williams on the stick here. So Dread has made his way to the front door of the Urchison Mansion, which we saw him heading towards uh, last time. Mm-hmm. He's neutralized the external security, which has definitely killed a couple people that are sort of rotting outside, <laughs> and now he's headed inside. In a flashback, we continue a, f- a flashback phone conversation we saw last episode, which is PJ maybe talking to Mrs. Urchison, oh who has God. called PJ's PJ's parents to let them stay at their secured mansion. And PJ lies and says, yeah, listen, I was I'm just fresh out of the mental hospital after being cured of being a dangerous psychopath. It's awesome. <laughs> and she's... More than, I guess, amenable for him coming over and using their uh, their hideout. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess if you're cured, there's no problem. <laughs> Definitely has <laughs> that feeling. They've given you that big Simpsons uh, sane, sane stamp to wear or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Oh, I she love that they're also like, they're, they're the inventors of the 24-hour crotch and armpit liner, which, I mean. Re- yeah. Good call on on that one, guys. I'm surprised it hasn't happened already. I gotta say, Honest. like I'll tell you, like here we are, uh, mid September 2020, Fox, sweating our asses off. Like, listen, I made some supply chain decisions, and I've got to like go buy deodorant right after this, like immediately. It's a terrible emergency. <laughs> I should not be deodorized at any time. I need all the help I can get. Oh, God, you're uh, preaching to the choir on that one. I'm a stinky boy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Mrs. Archerson offers to San Diego Jr. to pick PJ up, and he's like, ooh, that's even better. Dread makes his way 
through the Urchison mansion, learning of an extensive underground fallout shelter. <laughs> he goes to check it as Junior, as apparently Junior Urchison, sees him and triggers some mines and missiles. You know it's Junior because he's got this like kind of like big like a, a quiffy mohawk mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then also he's wearing a bracelet that says Junior on it. That's right. Yeah, identifying. Um, that's a, that's back, a hundred percent. That's who it is. Definitely. Back in the past, Junior arrives the maybe house and is shocked to find that PJ's parents are dead. Their dying wish was that he wear these trousers. <laughs> and you've got to wet them, of course, first. Well, to fit them, yeah. Once Junior puts them on, he douses them with water, and then Dread blocks those missiles with like a shield that he pulls off a nearby suit of armor. That's real. This whole real rad. Yeah, it's getting to be more trouble than it's worth, he says. Yeah. Anyway, PJ soon reveals that Junior's wearing those 007 pants as Junior himself slips away to death. Oh, my God. Then PJ snags the hover limo and heads out. Uh, you know, as you do. It's uh, this Arson is-, is fun, we learn. <laughs> As PJ rides into the Urgerson house, his face, his face bruised and bloody, he says they were attacked by phobia and nausea, and they killed Junior and PJ's parents. Oh, no. oh my God. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dredd arrives at the bomb shelter and knocks on the door, and inside, Diego Urgerson looks nervous, but Junior seems relaxed. Anyway, things seem to go pretty well for PJ as the violence rages outside, Inside, it seems Diego's having a lot of trouble with his son's death. PJ's only too willing to step in as a surrogate Don't son. Don't worry about me, Dad. Yeah. This house has everything, even a face changer to make him look just like Junior. That's handy. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Urchison uh, is pretty sure PJ is, in fact, still a dangerous psychopath. Oh, man, you what? fucking... Yeah. <laughs> You sure about that? <laughs> False claims. Come on. So he so he boils her alive in her own pool. And when she's pulled out, PJ's made the full transition to JR Jr., that is. Oh, my God. It's just really seems to be working out with him being this guy's son now. Definitely, yeah. So Dredd arrives inside the shelter where he tells him the city's back under, like, human judge control. And PJ says he kept the security system on because he saw Dredd's dead man face and it was real gross. <laughs> All right. Going to get these jabs in, Judge Dredd, because you can't do nothing right now. Nope. And, and like that, PJ has a new identity. Necropolis worked out pretty well for him, Oh, my honest. God. Now this, I mean, he's just back on the streets. He's just going to start murdering so many people. Back on the streets, he's rich again. Like, it seems like he's, his fortune's pretty well secured, actually, in comparison to the maybe um, um, trials and travails. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this armpit and crotch liner business, uh, they basically sell themselves. Yeah, and it seems less competitive than, than, than trousers or whatever. I mean, they did make poison pants. I don't, I don't know how far they were going to really make <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to sell those to a specific audience, Fox. Like to secret agents who need to suicide on desert planets. There, you know? Okay. You wear, you wear them over your still suit. It's good times. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, uh, so anyway, things seem pretty set for PJ still, though. Better to lay low when you think about it, mm-hmm. Fox. And PJ maybe will return in 1993. Oh, cool. So little ways yet, yeah. you know, but still. He's out there. Keep that in mind. You know, just on the back burner. 
Next up, uh, these uh, two PJ Maybe stories were at the start, but now Dredd's in the middle of the comic for this one story, art by Mike Hadley, who did the Isagiri variations. And we're back in the theater as Dredd waits in the wings of a production of Macbeth, waiting for a perp to show up in the audience. God, and man, oh man, he's looking oogier than ever. Yeah, Hadley's going crazy with how fucked up Dredd is here. <laughs> like he's he's he looks more like Groot than like a dude, yeah. just because he's all like co- he's like one hundred percent scar tissue and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and I'm, it's funny I'm loving because this the, production it, of Macbeth, by the way. What? Oh yeah, no, I I like it too, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I should say, actually, in the magazine, Dredd's mostly healed up at this point. Someone even makes a joke that he's regrown his nose and stuff. Oh, pretty yeah. solid. Um, but, uh, yeah, this version of Macbeth Fox, I'm not sure about this. It's, they seem to all be dressed by super he- dressed like superheroes and using, like, hip-hop language or something like that. Yeah, it's real weird. You're going to be a like, thing. McDay to McDuff are definitely calling like each other bro and stuff like that. Like I don't know if I like it actually. Snape is Big Mac. Yeah, the so- that's not even an identifier in fucking Scotland back then, man. Everybody's a Mac something. That's ridiculous. Um, the su- the suspect the judges are looking for arrives in Act Two. Is this a laser blaster I see before oh, me? Oh God, that's uh, such a weird whole weird situation going on on stage <laughs> one guest ha- one of them hands uh an envelope to the other but this new guy stabs the other dude in the gut oh what a jerk the play rolls on as the stab dude gets up and shoots the sh- and sh- <laughs> shoots the stabber then dread runs out and shoots him in turn and in the gun play some scenery gets a uh, shot and it falls on the lead actor and the play is on indefinite intermission <laughs> <laughs> Dink Olivier is taken out on a stretcher as Dredd says Macbeth one more time. Yeah, it's just doing it to just like really cheese this guy. Because I guess yeah, I've heard of I that say whole I, like yeah. superstition. Yeah, me too. Yeah, at the start of the comic, there was some who's on first stuff about uh, not saying the word Macbeth and instead saying like, uh, you know, the Scottish play <laughs> or whatever who's else. who's on first stuff. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, like, that's the best way to says, put it, I feel like. Like, like, like when, when Dredd says Macbeth and they're like, well, no, don't say it. And he says, what, Macbeth? Like, that's, yeah. no, I don't know. That's no, that's some who's like, on first shenanigans. I'm there with you. You know, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to great, you know, listen, I got, I got Die Hard in a, and I got who's on first stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to set, put together an ecology of a short, I'm trying to put together some shorthand here, you know. Uh, Wonderful. <laughs> final final section for Dread back at the start. Carlos Escara is on art and Garth Ennis is writing. And this is the first non-John Wagner or Alan Grant Dread writer in the progs in like 10 years, Fox. Jesus. Uh, I should say Wagner himself is in the process of transitioning to working on the magazine mm. where he's doing a lot where he's writing like three Dread stories a Jesus month or something Christ. like that. It's real good. Listen, like if you... I don't. If you're listening to this, I don't know why you wouldn't listen to Big Meg One. It's underway. Like episode three out, episode two out on Friday. It's gonna be very exciting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, um, it, 
Anyway, it's January 1st, 2021-13, and it's a bad time for Mork, Mork Hancock of Apartment 1066 of the Cellar and Yeatman block. And this is a reference to the writers of the musical comedy Cellar and Yeatman. Uh, the, the, they wrote uh, 1066 and all that, which is a, a musical about English history. Mm. He's been murdered, and Dredd has found his body in the uh, Julian Clary Alley, which is an English comedian. The killers didn't take anything, and Dredd tells the text to keep him informed of their progress. Hell yeah. Also, it seems like Dredd's looking pretty re- rejuvenated here. Huzzah. Good times. Yay. Um, and speaking of all that, it's the Hunter's Club at Christmas party. Fuck yeah. Man, I love these guys. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, you'll remember we last saw the Hunter's Club in Prague's uh, 407 to 411, mm-hmm. so 300 Prague's ago, in our episodes uh, 127 and 128, so almost Good 100 um, ish episodes ago, too. Were, were we ever so young, you know? Yeah. Um, you'll recall that they kill people for sport and stuff like that. Oh, man. And I... during Necropolis, they just sort of, like, did that, basically. <laughs> it was open season. I love I love their leader's whole fucking get up with this giant skull with two crossed guns necklace. He's so evil. Yeah. It's great. It's what, you'd, it's what you'd hope for from the chairman of the Hunters Club, to be honest. Absolutely. I mean, he's... He's making sure that everyone's got full glasses, that they have buttons, they've got some t-shirts. Man, oh man, we're going to have ourselves That's some right. sponsored hunts. That's right. Yeah, the chairman leads a toast. Things have been good for hit for them, but they must give something back. So he announces a charity drive. Death aid. Kill the world. <laughs> He's got t-shirts. Sponsored hunt. We go out. We kill as many people as as possible. The highest count becomes club champion, and then you also get people to sponsor you for each kill. It's a walkathon, but for murders essentially. <laughs> but you know, we can't actually tell people that you're going to murder people. So just make uh, you know because we're going to get arrested. So just make sure that yeah. you say it's a sponsored run, and they're doing it by the mile. But you know, you're just going to be logging those as kills. Yeah, listen, when you say run and mile, be sure to wink every time you do, (laughs) you know, just so so they know it's something else. (laughs) Jesus. Anyway, the money goes to the orphans. Hooray. Gonna make some. It's gonna be great. (laughs) We're gonna make some orphans. And then give them money. One of the club members isn't into it, gets a few bullets to the chest for objecting, but so everybody else seems pretty down. Oh, yeah. Like, one of the rules is that you can kill other people from the Hunter's Club to get their points. Ooh, got some stealing. Um, Anyway, everybody seems into it. Badges and mini cams are handed out as well as T-shirts. Glasses are toasted. Remember, it's for charity. The city's in for a bloody new year, and Mork Hancock is just the first. Oh, my God. No doubt, huh? Next time, goodbye, Yasa. Oh, I like Yasa. Me too. I don't like these implications, Mm -hmm. I must say. Oh, boy. Yeah. Exciting times. I am I am pretty interested to have uh, uh, Ennis on uh, on Dread here. Yeah. I think his tenure will have some ups and downs for sure. But I think it is, you know, it's, I don't know. I am like the, uh, 
the comics fan of me is always at least slightly interested in new blood, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Or just, 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 just changes. I like churn, Fox, you know. Mm-hmm. And Wagner's had an amazing dread run for these last fucking 10 years, you know. So I think it could, could be safely handed off to somebody else, at least for a little while. Yeah. He said, knowing the actual truth of that statement. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> hey, Fox. What? You know what else is a, has strange implications? <sighs> you know who else that got assumed identities that were just going to sort of breeze over a little bit? I mean. <laughs> Thrill 2, time flies. I, I have such a weird relationship with this part of the comic. <laughs> Script robot Garth Ennis, art robot Philip Bond, lettering robot Gordon Kid Robson. So, finally up and running again, the Digger time machine at last arrives at the planet Meat and two veg mm-hmm. in the uh, cholesterol system. Get it? I mean, they do lampshade these jokes, so I guess it's fine. Like they're kind of like, <laughs> oh yes, we've arrived at the silly names sector or something like that. <laughs> um, they land as Cuddy Osark observes them. Cap and Whitewash is not having a great time with this donkey-drawn time machine. Yeah. And he keeps grumbling until the Time Flies team arrives with various big sci-fi guns really showing up Bertie Sharp's uh, plain old pistol or whatever. Yeah. Whitewash's men also have sci-fi guns, though, and it seems like there's a fight about to break out until Trace basically says, hey, we don't got to fight, and then offers them rewards for helping to recover Osark and Goering. A full pardon and a free checkbook and pen and a supply of peanuts. A year's supply, rather. Whitewash's crew seems very interested in various parts of this deal. I mean, very specifically the peanuts. There's a lot of discussion about a year's worth of peanuts being a good deal. And then people talk about what kind of peanuts they like. I'm honey roasted or nothing, buddy. Yeah, I'll say honey roasted. I like that kind of honey roasted rolled in like some salt. Ooh. Yeah, let's. Ooh, that's nice. Okay. We got to talk later. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Whitewash. Yeah, so they're interested in this, but the time pirate himself, and he's fallen on the ground, and we see that he has wooden legs with roller skates on them, is full of sadness that this would happen, and instead of joining up, just fucking shoots himself in the head. Jesus. What the fuck, man? See content warning, friends, I guess, in this lighthearted, silly comic. It goes up and down. for sure. Like, there's just... Honestly, it actually does feel kind of Garth Ennis to me, this very... Oh, sure. Like, oh, fun, silly. Whoa, that's a pretty graphic description (laughs) of violence right there, buddy. (laughs) I thought we were... I thought we were just gonna, like, maybe have some gunshots and some quips... But then there's that dude over there and you like ripped his jaw off and now we're really checking out what his windpipe looks like. I don't know if I like this that much. Oh. I don't know. Uh, so the the digger follows after Cuddy Sark and Herman Goering on their tandem bike. They're towing the pirate's TARDIS behind them. As they get close, Trace asks if they're ready to fight, and the lads are. They're so ready that they pile out of the TARDIS to attack, but they're way too high up, and they just land in a series of bloody oh, splotches. <laughs> Trace conf- lands and confronts Osark, and the yuppie keeps calling Trace my sweet. Yeah, Blows weird. away the remaining target, the remaining pirates, and it's like, you'll move, darling. <laughs> hey, what's that all about? Hey, oh, hey, he keeps calling you nice things. Turns out they were married. Yeah. Turns out Trace is actually Princess Olivia, daughter of Perrier II, 
and the two of them were once married, and Bertie thinks that the name Olivia is hilarious. I guess. I don't, I don't, you had to be there, I guess. Um, <laughs> she, she says they were married, but then she tried to kill him because she hated him so much, only to kill her father instead by accident. And that's why she joined the time investigation team to one day take out Cuddy Osark. But while she was expositing, Osark has gotten on his bike and is speeding towards the TARDIS. He'll once more pillage the timelines. All right. Osark in the time machine is in the time machine as Bertie punches Goering, and it seems like one of the bros, one of the bros, has wet his pants. I guess I don't know. Cuddy Osark prepares the time machine while singing, while singing "My Way" pretty badly. Doesn't know a lot of the words in "My Way." Um, no, but as he's doing this on his bike, it seems like Goering did something to the brakes, so instead he rides at full speed headfirst into the torture room. Okay, uh, yeah, and that's uh. It's a really graphic torture room. Yeah, it's just a whole bunch of blades, and he kind of gets skeletonized instantly, basically. Uh, the they bike can't seems okay, like, though. Yeah, listen, they aren't the, 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 you can't torture a bike, you know? It already... <laughs> Once you get on, you know all of its secrets right away oh or something. <laughs> that's That's fuck? why it's always... That's why you always know how to do it, Fox. It, it gives up the information to you. It's a spiritual connection. Don't tell anybody about that. Um, the the beautiful spiritual connection between a man and his bike. Yeah. What? What you never you never you never velocipeded aggressively, buddy? Come on. That's why they didn't want women to ride bikes in Victorian times, buddy. Obviously. So, <laughs> Bertie <laughs> gathers the bones and says a few words, and then Trace stomps them into dust. The crew then fries to the city of tedious wrecks, built on the ruins of London, and it's the year 3584. Sure. There's at least one Elvis walking around, more celebrities, more singing and dancing, as Trace gets drunk and friendly, and then boots and kisses Bertie on the cheek. Okay. After the party... The crew thank Birdie and send him back to his own time, right where he left ten weeks later, though, at the controls of a crashing bomber. This Whoa. time, he crashes <laughs> right into the side of a Russian tank regiment. Which, you know, let's, uh, we, we gotta play out that, uh, squadron leader English person, ally of Mother Russia in glorious attack of vile Nazi stronghold of Berlin. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the the Russians are speaking this like incredibly overdone, um, like translation of English or something yeah. like that. I'm not I'm not super positive what this is a reference to, or if it's just like Russian translations at the time or something like that. Mm. It's got a big feel of that joke where um, you're translating for someone and you say one word and then it becomes a paragraph of words or something like oh, that, yeah. you know? But anyway, um, <laughs> meanwhile, Goering's transported back to the to the Fuhrer bunker and this time just in time to find a dead Hitler and a bunch of Russians arriving to kick the, to kick the shit out of him, which is fine, frankly. Jeez. I like this urgent message. Um, we, we've had it. Start, Start practicing, practicing Brazil. their Brazilian lingo now. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, 
Back at high command, Bertie considers telling the truth about his disappearance, but knows they would immediately put him in the nut house for it. So uh, instead, just kind of plays dumb. Like sometimes, I guess time just flies. Oh. Um, <laughs> we cut to newsreel footage of Birdie arriving at number ten to get a medal from Churchill, only to jump out a window and get arrested because it seems the Time Flies crew was there waiting for him. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> oh man. The end of Time Flies. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's fine. Time Flies will return. But not until 1996. Oh, whoa. Uh, and meanwhile, Garth Ennis has plenty to do. You know, he's doing a bunch of other stuff. Mm. And um, like I'll say I haven't read that new one because it's it's in like the thousands. So it's after my 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 thrilled time. So we'll learn about that one together, buddy. Cool. Yeah. I, I thought this was a fun like uh, like again. I don't know. I feel like a Star Lordathon really kind of put me off my dinner when it comes to Nazi stuff. <laughs> um <laughs> I'm there with you because I, I enjoy the levity and the writing's real good and the art's real good. But, you know, it's it's like, yeah, I'm eating my carrots. Yeah, I've just had enough Nazis, to yeah. be honest. It shouldn't keep coming up, Fox. I don't know why it is. It's so it's so ubiquitous, yeah. you know, with the but comic that, at this yeah, point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's as, it's as frequent in British comics as the existence of space junk in our own night sky, Fox. Oh, my God. And on the topic of that, Thrill 3, Junker. God. Uh, mm. Script robot Michael Fleischer, art robot John Ridgway, coloring robot Tim Perkins, letter robot Tom Frame. Ah, yes, Junker, the tale of the landed nobility of Prussia. I, oh, wait, no, never mind. Uh, no, it's just an asshole and his weird scab monkey. That's right. Yeah, it's just a slightly more down market Han Solo somehow. Oh, um, <laughs> a spaceship towing another ship flies into a yard full of other rank-wrecked spaceships looking for money for salvaging a derelict as both the ship's pilot and his lizard monkey alien buddy take, sw take swigs from a, a bottle of space booze. I mean, a bald yeah. he's really not nice to this, this scab ape. Nope. A bald space station boss tries to lowball the scavenger, but ends up getting five thousand. But he ends up getting five thousand for the job. He and Raz, the monkey dude, fly down to the planet to have some fun. They're buying snacks. They're getting propositioned by red and blue skinned alien sex workers. It's a good time. <laughs> so I think it's about time that we have our requisite uh, Star Wars bar fight. Pay us extra and we will fuck your monkey. Oh, they, they, they roll. In, they say that, yeah. <laughs> they roll into a saloon and get some Terran rot gut. And yeah, like you said, very new hope up in this place. Especially as an alien with one big eye threatens the junker with a big knife. I don't like you either. <laughs> Dr. Ponda Baba. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> This leads to a knife fight and the alien getting shivved right in their eye, which oh, is pretty God. solid. Ah, my one turns, eye. That's all I had. <laughs> and this turns into a big bar brawl. There's punches and headbutts back and forth. Eventually, the junker pulls a gun and shoots the chandelier, Ugh. creating a distraction that lets him and Raz escape. He really uses that gun often. Yeah, listen, again, hammers, nails, etc. The lads are off to the next one when they hear a voice cry out. 
and see a lady with blue skin, different from the first one, being menaced by a lizard dude and then some other kind of alien dude that I couldn't make out <laughs> at the end of this prog. Oh. I think he's like a clay dude or something. Yeah. He's weird. But uh, the junker, who's named is uh, Dennehy, I guess, jumps in to save the lady. No, and it's a bad idea. Come on. Luckily, him and Raz, monkey dude, are able, are handy in a fight and soon beat off these dudes attacking the lady. <laughs> That's right. I said it. <laughs> beat them off. <laughs> She's blue with a maroon jumpsuit. And, like, the jumpsuit has, like, one hole in the top. Oh. She's got a big cloud of white hair coming out of. I mean, um, she feels very kind of sixties. Um, yeah, I don't um, hairstyle. I don't here. understand what's going on with the fashion and the the look of this thing here because this feels like something out of the seventies. Definitely, um, it seems this lady's in a hurt is is in a hurry because her ship is damaged and she needs a ride out. She offers the junker a chance to give her a ride, but he's fine. Don't worry about it, baby. Until he sees that his money pouch has gone missing, and then the mob from the bar finds him. <laughs> Dennehy snags a hover bike and offers the lady a ride as well. Soon they're on the run and back at his ship, which she just, again, fully Millennium Falcons here. Like, this hunk of junk? Why? It's so Star Wars. <laughs> Definitely. He offers to give her a ride to the nearest hub system as Raz pries open her pocketbook, which where was she keeping that before, buddy? Huh? Not clear. <laughs> but <laughs> in, the, in her hair pocket. Ooh, hair pot. Ooh. <laughs> anyway, it reveals a blue diamond thing that glows and shouts a weird language. It's so loud that Denny, he loses control of the ship and he's about to crash. And I believe this is a situation actually where, um, sorry, I point that out because I remember in Throw Power Overload, they, um, um, Ridgeway was talking about working with this script and how it was a little bit tough because Fleischer was in America, so it was hard to communicate with him. Right. And so, when he did the initial designs, he didn't realize that this character was supposed to be carrying like a pocketbook with a thing in it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't, didn't <laughs> drew her wearing a skin tight thing and stuff. And then he actually didn't really like, you'll notice that the thing that's, uh, that initially the thing that is uh, making the noise isn't very well defined. <laughs> and that's because he didn't actually get a description of it until a couple issues in, basically. Oh my God. Some communication malfunctions here. This fucking this comic. Because why I don't know. I a while ago I forget I forget who it was, but someone wrote a Twitter thread about um, writing for comic books, mm -hmm. and they basically said like in the script you shouldn't be teasing like the the person reading the script of the comic. Like feel free to like start describing people early and saying who's who and stuff like that. Because if you write the script like a novel, like you're trying to hide things, right. then your artist doesn't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> oh, anyway. fantastic. Um, yeah, so the pocketbook starts screaming. Yeah. It's so loud that Dennehy loses control of the ship. He's going to crash. And so he has a special goo dispenser inside of his ship? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're getting to it. Yeah, so the Junker moves to the start of the prog as this box crystal radiates a weird song. So then he activates his puncture control device and splorts the box with like epoxy or something. Okay. So I'm thinking that basically if there was like a whole breach that this thing could be used to seal that breach. Well, in the then how the basically. hell are you going to get it out of that box? It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> 
Maybe there's an epoxy so you can like oh remove God. it. You gotta you gotta squirt it with a different splurt machine. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you splurt it with something else and it like denatures the epoxy. Oh God. Um. Anyway. <sighs> To avoid crashing into a ship, he lasers a derelict instead, and now he owes that station manager 20,000 space bucks. Okay. But his curiosity space, but his curiosity is now also space peaked. He wants to toss that box out of the airlock. The blue lady says no. It's super valuable. She's, uh, Varix to, a, uh, survi- a uh, survivor of the uh, royal lineage oh, of a Nalsfix. None of this And her matters. way of life is based on these rare space crystals. The royal what family the are the only one that can gather them, Why? but they're very dangerous. So she, so they all died while doing it, and she's the only one to make it back alive. But they didn't plan for this when they <laughs> sent out the expedition by like having – just crew members that weren't part of the away team, basically. <laughs> like, people not... It, like I, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation is out, buddy. Like, Picard doesn't leave that ship anymore because that's a dumb way to run a military operation. Yeah. You know? <laughs> anyway, the ship... Like was didn't have any other crew and was wasn't designed to be fl- flown by one person, so she was able to limp into that uh, station. And now she's gonna do some. She's gonna explain some other stuff when an emergency alert goes off. All right, that dang fuel distributor's messed up, Fox. Okay, they gotta land fast or the ship will go out of control. So strap in. Oh God, that's right. I forgot they did a Tatooine also. Yeah, listen, it's good. Um, <laughs> the sh- um, the uh, Dennehy deci- decides to call this lady VJ, which I guess is better than Varextic, j- um, which is fair. Um, <laughs> and they manage to find a planet with a breathable atmosphere to land on. Ship lands hard, and it looks like these new valves they got were pretty shitty. Luckily, he's got spares, and they'll hold till again they get to a hub station. So, you know, doubly have to get there. It's time to go, but the lizard monkey, whose full name appears to be Razmataz, is out exploring. In a dark cave, he finds a pair of glowing pearls, which are the eyes of some crazy monster. So now we've transitioned from a new hope to Empire Strikes Back, for the record. (laughs) Um... Dennehy and VJ show up, but his blaster isn't enough to take out of the being. It's made of silicon, so it could just pull sand off the walls to regenerate itself. God, that really feels like this whole planet then is just its feeding ground. That's right. Dennehy decides to uh, up the heat and toss a thermal grenade at it, and it turns to glass so he's able to shatter it. It's time to go, but as they leave the cave, a bunch of desert warrior dudes are waiting for them. Okay. Now we've gone back to a new hope, so we got sand people. I mean, it could also, yeah, it could also be Ewoks. Ooh, that's right. Could be Ewoks. I feel like... They definitely feel more sand people. They aren't surface cute enough to be Ewoks, so let's just keep that, you know, in our minds (laughs) for later on. Who knows? Listen, I I will tell you 100%, Fox. Yeah. I forgot about the existence of this story. (laughs) I don't know what the heck's going to go on with it. I'm... Completely blind going in here, so uh, anything could happen. So far, but we've it's, been... it's really not catching my uh, my my care here. So far, I'm seeing these influences, buddy. They're pretty clear. Like, <laughs> you know, this is one of these what one of these stories based on Star Wars where you can just do the full full 
Romanoclef here. Just mm-hmm. like, all right, well, you know, we got Han, we got Leia, we got a Chewie, I guess. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the I guess was probably my favorite part of that. Time. Well, yeah, man, come on. A green this horny scam little monkey, lizard yeah, monkey is not is not a, not a replacement for my buddy Chewbacca, man. Yeah, come on. Dude, it's just real weird. It's a weird choice in a in a sidekick. Yeah, horny space lizard eating other lizards for things on sticks. Anyway. Jesus. Speaking of strange choices, Fox. Now, nah, I guess just sort of, I don't know. Speaking of uh, advancing thrill power, let's talk non-thrills, covers, and nerve setters. Very Nintendo-focused this, this month. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Prog 708, War and Peace. Arthur Ranson draws Anderson fighting some uh, Darrow or a Garthy or whatever on the side of a giant Buddha head. Yeah, sure. Yeah, fine. In the Nerve Center, Tharg reminisces about the earliest thrills and how they compare with more modern ones. Oh. Igro- yeah. Better. Ups and downs, I'd say. Oh, better now or better then? <laughs> Ooh. I'd say they're different. Like yeah. They're sort of just going in different directions and stuff yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Um, Igroid has a spotting of an issue of 2000 AD in the movie Nuns on the Run, which takes me back. And the Irish News has an article about the history of Slain. Also, apparently, several scan card extras went missing in northern England. There's pictures of a Vietnam War story in this month's crisis. Midprog Forbidden Planet is offering a deal on Teenage Mutant Ninja turkeys. Mm. And in input... There's a picture of Judge Fashion Victim, complete with a Manchester United striped jersey. All right. Uh, and Rogue the Warlock with a sweet nemesis spine yeah, going to Bagman. That's neat. Yeah, definitely. Letters ask about Dread World, like if there's a what's up with Mega City 2, Mega City 3, international judges. And they ask what the longest running storyline was. Um, and then why Anderson looks so much younger than Dread if they've been around for the same amount of time. The answer is be cool. Yeah. Um, a gentleman never asks I, and a lady never tells, dude. Yeah. And I think, um, for the record, the longest running continuous storyline, they say it's the VCs and this Meltdown Man erasure is bullshit, yeah. Fox. Oh, like, that's God. not cool at all. Meltdown Man was forever. Yeah, 52. Yeah, 50 progs, almost a year. They say VCs is longer with 32? Come on, man. Oh, okay. Um, anyway... Uh, the prog ends with an ad for the game Speedball 2 Brutal Deluxe right. by Bitmap Bros. It seems uh, fine. It's kind of just kind of a sports um, video game. It's future sports. I watched – yeah, future sports definitely. I watched a, a Let's Play of it. It's kind of interesting just because they do stuff like – like the big thing is that it's very much a sort of dudes tackling each other and then trying to like score goals basically. Mm. But they do stuff where when you hit the guy with the ball, the ball goes flying up into the air and then you have to catch it. But because of this isometric view, it does this kind of interesting like 3D effect. The ball kind of gets bigger as it gets closer to the screen and then smaller and stuff. I don't know. Interesting stuff for 1990 is what I'm trying to say. Prog 709. Anthony Williams asks a key question. Who's that juve? (laughs) Could JDIDPJ? Okay. (laughs) As PJ... Looks like Junior and is very innocent. In the nerve center, Tharg asks, um, or yeah, Tharg says, I should say, they're working through Christmas. And Igroid says the new 2000 AD is going to be great. Mentions an article about Dread of the Daily Star and just the, the long running uh, comic strip there. Hmm. They also tease the upcoming Al's baby story in the Meg, which we'll be getting there, getting to oh very my soon. God. Wait, like a literal one, huh? 
Owls, yeah, it's about a gangster in like God, I don't know. I forget what it said, actually. It could be only a few years from now, like as we're recording this. Like pre-judges, but still in the history of Mega City One. Got it. About a future Chicago gangster who um I believe he's like dating the boss's daughter. And like they and, and, and like wants to have a kid, you know, to Ooh. continue the the, uh, the the mobster legacy. But she's like a lounge singer who doesn't want to get pregnant. So he sort of uh, d- does a junior and carries it instead, basically. Oh, my God. I'm so glad. It's honestly a pretty fun story. It's got art by Carlos Vizcarra. Oh, like cool. it's just a – I'm actually really looking forward to it. We're going to see that one in episode four of the Maggie's, I believe, is replacing this Kenny Who one. But okay, yeah. cool. Three's, of course, the uh, – or, yeah, episode four of uh, Big Meg One, I should say. Yeah, good times. Okay, so <laughs> Midprog is an ad which says a from shredded wheat, which has like, a Nintendo themed sticker book in it. Oh, man. And, and man, is Mid-Prog- that a. That's a big old badonk for that Mario drawing that they did. It's not very much a uh, uh, we've seen two screenshots sort of Mario world here. <laughs> um. Midprog does an in-depth review of the Game Boy by Big K, who Hell I believe yeah. is Richard Burton. Also, f- we talked a lot about the Game Boy last episode, so I'm not, I'm not going to get no, into yeah, it here, no Fox. Um, also, Forbidden Planet has a bunch of old Marvel cartoons, including the Fantastic Four one, where they replaced the Human Torch with the robot because they were afraid of kids setting themselves on fire. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> The input page is playing the game with us with that with, with the OK symbol in the background. I guess like oh, I don't know yeah. if they have that in England. But that's what's going. Someone owes me a punch. Um, <laughs> um, and there's pictures of an oniony Judge Pickled and a bearded Neanderthal. Uh-huh. Letters delight at the larger letters page, and I gotta say, I think it's actually about the same size, just because oh, yeah. there's usually one, like like the fan art is real big, and at least one column is just taken up by letter rules, basically. So I don't think there's actually been an absolute so- change in the amount of letters being printed here. No. <laughs> um, but uh, a- another uh, letter says the 60s are back, man, and wonders if uh, the dr- art droids are one-off or production mo- models. And then there's some complex questions about what the dates on the 2080 covers actually mean. Mm. And I'll tell you that the dates are uh, when news agents are supposed to take the comic off the shelves. Oh, interesting. It's kind of interesting to me. Which is why they often don't actually – if you look at the dates, it says 2080 comes out on Monday, but the date is often not a Monday. Mm. And that's sort of how it works out. Um, anyway, Prog 710, it's the Christmas cover. Santa sits on Tharg's lap, lap with a long list. And I like that the list is all 2080 issues and merch and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, of course. The line leads leading up to the Mighty Ones full of cameos. I see Deacon from the Harlem Heroes, Chopper, Rojaws, Bradley, Zenith, and Walter towards the front of the line. Mm. Then Hammerst- Hammerstein, Hooligan, Birdie, and Tanner further back. Yeah, you can and see that, that even further uh, back. Hooligan by, by haircut alone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you can see uh, Slane's Horn God helmet back there, mm. too. Uh, Tharg wishes us Jingle Borags and gr- Grud blesses everyone. And Igroid <laughs> has a star spot with John Smith, who's working on a bunch of stuff currently, including some things you won't see for quite some time. But he mentions uh, Killing Time, Firekind, Tyranny Rex, and more. Cool. 23, loves the talking heads, manages to make jokes about both Grant Morrison and Garth Ennis in the course of this uh, interview. <laughs> 
There's also a mention of the winter special, which we'll be getting to soon. I guess next episode, actually. For next, yeah, soon enough. And then Midprog Big K has a review of the Atari Lynx, which I think I've talked about, and is the biggest example, I think, of left handed representation in video games. Wow. It's funny that he says it's the Goliath to Game Boy's David, or maybe, I guess, biblically correct, because I feel like the Lynx is very much a forgotten artifact of a distant time. Oh, yeah. It's big, though. Man, big, big console. (laughs) Destroyed batteries. Yeah, it it very much reminds me of, like, the Game Gear, you know? Definitely. The Game Gear was much smaller than the Lynx. Oh, really? You you could use a skateboard. Like, it's big. Um, Not not actually really, but it was, like, it's very wide. Mm. Like, I don't know. Um, Like, like the size of, like, a large man's shoe. Like, the size of, like, one of my (laughs) shoes. Holy shit. Prog's, like, like like a size 13 in the States. God damn. Uh, Prog 7-Eleven, time flies when you're having fun. Philip Bond draws Trace and Birdie playing in the snow, making a dread snowman. I like this cover a lot, actually. Yeah. It's very, it's kind of a fun winter one. In the Nerve Center, Tharg teases a lot of upcoming stories, including more Anderson, Mean Machine, Nemesis, and Deadlock, or, or Nemesis and Deadlock, Universal Soldier 3, Indigo Prime, and the return of Robo Hunter. Oh, Okay. Mm. Yeah. Igroid sadly announces the end of Revolver. And while it seems the mega, uh, but it does seem the magazine's selling well. So that's good times. Uh, Midprog, there's an ad for the NES. Oh, hell baby. yeah, buddy. Sexy girl. Apparently in England, it comes bundled with a legendarily difficult Teenage Mutant Hi- Hero Turtles game. Good luck, kids. Oh, Hero Turtles. Because ninjas are bad. Oh, yeah. That's right. Listen, if people, if kids hear the name ninjas, there could be nunchuck, nunchuck assaults in the streets of London, buddy. <laughs> you don't want that. I don't want that. But all, all, right? of the, all of the hero turtles have like nunchucks inside and a bow and a sword. Yeah, but then, but if you just see <clears throat> them, then you'll just think it's for them. If you know that they're actually ninjas, then that can make a big difference. <laughs> oh, boy. It's true. And hey, speaking of uh, dangerous ideas causing big problems, Fox. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thrill 4, Silo. God, should be called uh, 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 Squishy. Should be called Slime Monster. Should be called, what the <laughs> fuck? What is going on? Bloodlow. Yeah. It <laughs> should be called Die Hard in a Silo. Oh. <laughs> And my favorite part of of uh, Die Hard is when the uh, the alien erupts from that guy's chest. I guess Die Hard and The Shining and Silo, maybe. God, it is such a this this goes this 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 was this is good. Let me just put it that yeah, way. I, it was very cool. close to my top, by the way. Quite a ride for sure. Script robot Mark Miller, art robot Dave DeAntiki, leg robot Annie Parkhouse. Okay, we got two dudes in a missile silo, Fox. Yep. Yeah, so there's two dudes trapped in a missile silo. There's the big guy, Jim. He's gone, sorry, Jim, question mark. And he's gone insane and shot his buddy with glasses, Ted. But I'm just going to call him big in glasses like you suggested last episode, because that's fine with me. I'm so sorry. 
No, that's a much better idea because I know I got myself confused at the end of last episode in terms of who was Jim and who was Ted. Right. I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> it's really confusing. There's just two dudes, you know, it's tough. Um, so glasses seems pretty limber for two bullets in the chest. Like I was not. Once, <laughs> once I get, once I get gray, once my chest gets grazed by a bullet fox, I'm done for the day. Yeah, like, no, that's it. I'm you know? finished. He calls an elevator as Big reloads his pistol. In an office section, Glasses staggers to his feet and tries to find a place to hide, but he's trapped in here for 20 more hours. Meanwhile, Big, like, climbs up the elevator shaft, like the wires in there, yeah. and enters the office. And it seems like besides the pistol, he's also found an Uzi and tracks <laughs> Glasses' blood. He's sweating buckets as he clearly lies and promises not to hurt Glasses. And then, like, you know, just freaks out and shoots up the place, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's really not going to help your case. <laughs> he keeps trying to be reassuring, but then goes full shoot the glass when he remembers that Glasses doesn't have any shoes on anymore. Oh, God. <laughs> shoots all these windows and, like, fish tanks and shit that yeah. are in this office. <laughs> Gotta have, I don't know. Gotta have fish tanks in your uh, in your missile silo office. Yeah, but there's glass all over the place now. Again, full diehard here. Mm. Big thinks glasses is trapped, so he goes to get a coke, and uh, this leaves again. Kind of diehardy here. Uh, just <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get a coke while I wait. Bubby, <laughs> I'm your Leave white knight. I'm <laughs> love Alice, buddy. That's my favorite guy in Die Hard. I mean, he he's. <laughs> He's a real linchpin for that whole fucking movie. Once I realized it, I grew a beard and I had it for like a year because I was just trying to Alice in my life. That was going to be my my personality. Hell yeah, buddy. Um, So um, leaving a trail of blood of a bloody footprints, uh, Glasses has managed to John McClane his way into an air duct. He is not having a good time, man. Mm -mm, Got these foot shards. Big's having a bad time, too, though. He's feeling pain in his head and doubles over, drops his guns and his soda, which is tough. And he's (laughs) visited once more by this weird version of Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Okay. I'll tell you, he also coined the term the the, uh, pursuit of the almighty dollar. And he was the first person to start a story with the words, uh, it was a dark and stormy night. Oh. And so now there's a yearly writing contest named after him looking for the worst opening sentence in a novel. It's kind of fun. Um, but it seems the uh, the ghost of EBL is a uh, taunting big here. He insults him phrenolo- phrenologically several times. Like, ah, oh, yes, a man with your forehead shape would never understand, yeah. etc. <laughs> it's real fucking weird. And then he starts shining. You know, he, he shines him here saying, hey, man, go kill your buddy. Come on, do it. <laughs> We got work to do. Meanwhile, glasses is crawling. Seriously, get it together. Meanwhile, glasses is crawling through the air ducts, hearing his buddy debate himself. He's got to get to the control room, call out, and get help. But at the control room, the phone has been smashed. Oh no! God, hate it when those phones get smashed, and now you can't even use it. Definitely. Then the elevator dings, and it's big, and he's in a bad way. He collapses to the floor, and so Glasses has no choice but to grab a nearby typewriter and bash his friend's I mean, head in with like it. like, a lot. Listen, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I would. He's not quite dead, so he grabs Big and tosses him into a closet where he starts to giggle and make weird noises and then sing Strawberry Fields forever. Ugh. H and hours still help comes. And listen, listen, Fox, all right? This is not a normal human, I know. No, even if he's not, all right? Listen, you're, you're my best friend. I love you like a brother. But if you shoot me two times, like, that's done. <laughs> You know? I, I do feel that if I went full shining on you, I would not be upset if you tried to kill me with a typewriter. I would just, like, I would ask one thing only is that you finish the job and not lock me in a oh closet yeah. so that I don't start no. singing creepy shit. 100%. That's, yeah, listen. The, the Space Spinner 2000 promised both you and all our listeners, Fox, that if it comes to it, I will happily mercy kill the lotties. <laughs> Thank you. But also, again, reiterate, I don't care if we've done 500 podcasts together. Yeah, you shoot you, me twice. You tap me twice in the chest. It's once over. Once you shoot me, yeah. like, like, and, and, and I, listen, let's not, like, I'm not saying, like, in paintball or something. No, and you're, but and like, you with know, a real, with a real gun. We're not, we're not, we're not talking real. about paintball. We're talking about some Dick Cheney shit. Yeah. Yeah, like like once I've been shot, like that's that's the end of the friendship, man. You know, do you remember how he got? <laughs> he basically got his friend to apologize to him for shooting him in the ass with a bunch of fucking quail shot. I think it was his face, actually, <laughs> as I recall. Anyway, fourteen hours to go as glasses desperately solders the phone back together. He thinks he hears a <laughs> dial tone, but no luck. And in the closet, Big is asking to be let out to be let out to get some medical attention or maybe even just some fresh air or something. I mean, just um, no is the answer. It's guilt in glasses and it seems to be working. Back in the past, in the rain, EBL says he was the leader of the Fabian Society, which was founded 11 years after he died. So I'm getting angry about this. The society ad- does actually advocate for democratic socialism and sort of a gradualism. Um, oh, cool. And he says that for that, they were killed by the government, which they weren't. Fabian society exists to this day. EBO wants humanity to evolve towards perfection, but the world couldn't handle it. Okay. And I guess here he's making a distinction between the Vril overlords and regular humanity and goes off on a big, like, we're going <laughs> to nuke the world and change the world, change everything, face the future kind of stuff. I will say that Edward Bulward Lighton, I saw, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing Wikipedia, did write The Coming Race, which is the Vril handbook. But there's just a lot of stuff in here that's just not true <laughs> about <laughs> this character. It's making making me feel weird. Well, he definitely but, doesn't like, have cat eyes. That I do know. And like in the, he doesn't even have these freaking sideburns that or uh, uh, mutton chops that he's got <laughs> the, in this the, comic. The when mustache they draw mutton. Yeah, in the in the end, every picture I've seen is clean shaven. I don't don't care for it. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Big says he can't breathe and he starts choking and Glasses seems to have no choice but to let him out. But as Big comes out, he's in berserker mode, so Glasses has no choice once more and shoots Big and then empties the revolver into his body, which again, seems like the reasonable choice here. I mean, it doesn't seem to be working, especially after the fact that what happens next is real gross. He already shot you twice, buddy. (laughs) And your feet's full of glass because of them, okay? I mean, um, so I, it just, everything doesn't seem to be working out for glasses is all I mean. <laughs> so glasses is shot big at least eight times, but his body's still twitching around, which could just be the nerves in his body or uh, something. Oh, no, he's giving birth to, to a meat monster. 
Well, yeah, true. We, we, we learned that on the next page. He reloads just in case. But then from inside Big's body crawls forth a terrifying bloody humunculus right out of his chest. Yeah, what the fuck is going on here, man? Dunno. Ted, you're beginning to bore me. Ted, the you are beginning to bore glasses. me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's the Dale Gribble humunculus. Oh. <laughs> it stalks toward glasses, absorbing pistol shots. It punches and slaps them, forces him to work the missile controls because they're going to launch this nuke. And it's a two-man job. So now they're actually Superman 3-ing here, basically, oh, to sort of launch God. this nuke. Isn't that the one with the, with the giant palace that uh, What's-His-Face makes? Lex Luthor? Um. No, no, no. It's the one where Richard Pryor gets into computer programming and then uh, Superman gets all cyborgified and stuff. Oh, maybe I haven't seen Superman 3. It's so like there, there's basically a part where he's got to like do something. I forget, I don't think he's launched a nuke, but he is doing something to government supercomputer, which requires the use of a two man switch. Mm. But the other guy that's supposed to do it is uh, is dead. So he's got to like find a way to like rig the corpse up to, to uh, turn the switch, <laughs> the key with him at the same time and stuff. Great. I can also tell you that when I was a kid, I watched Superman 3 on, on TV, and when everybody started getting all robot-y, I got too scared and stopped watching it. <laughs> I understand. Robots freaked me out as a kid. I was like a seven or something like that. Mm-hmm. Was I was a very big Frady Cat kid. I feel like we've discussed this. Um, anyway... Um, in the end, uh, the creature needs glasses to turn the nuke key, but he doesn't want to do it. I mean, the the the, uh, the pistol can't hurt this beast, so he turns the gun on himself. And we see he pulls the trigger, and we see hear the blam on the CCTV screen, and see oh, blood splatter God and stuff damn. like that. Second suicide in the comic here. Uh. This episode terrible. And uh, on the CCTV screen, that jerk Frank they stranded above ground is still trying to get a ride back to the barracks and is stuck in the rain. Which means he's been there <laughs> for like 10 hours. That's bullshit. I, all right. He really is this poor fucking guy. Like these assholes who then like were chuckling about stranding him and almost destroyed the world because one of them is ghost possessed. <laughs> Guys are jerks. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they're dead, frankly. <laughs> but that's the end of Silo. I mean, but so is the goo man still there? I mean, if the, the next people who come in have to deal with the super homunculus. Don't know. That might, in fact, um, be Frank. Yeah, no, it could be anything. We, we, we won't find out, though, because that's the end of the story. I'm okay with that. I like Silo, but because it did, I just, it, it really just went Definitely. off the rails real quick, and I was into it. Definitely feel like a switch got flipped that changed this thing from being kind of crazy to real super crazy God, right at the end. Yeah, really. And just the general level of craziness. <laughs> and be like, well, okay, I'll, I'll go along, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's some good content right there, buddy. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, so so this is it for Silo, but both the creators are on to other things. Cool. Uh, Dave Antiki will be doing the art for Brigand Dune in early 1991. Okay. And then later in 91, Mark Miller will be writing for the uh, Robo Hunter reboot, which is also sort of on the horizon. Oh, man. Really hoping that works out. Ah, uh, sorry, buddy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I figured, right? 
I want to fold things around a little bit, Fox, because I want to end on the next big thrill. So first, let's stop off in Thrill 5, Future Shock. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. This story is called Sleigh Bells in the Sky. Script robot Gordon Robson, art robot Steve Yole, letting robot Steve Potter. Yeah, I do kind of like Robson getting a chance to write here. But this is very much just kind of a Night Before Christmas parody. Yeah, and and you know what is perfect about it, Conrad? Mm. Bitch is two, two pages. pages? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Chef's kiss. Yeah. Kids today think there's no such thing as Santa, but there is, and it's Tharg. Jingle Borax <laughs> once more. That's it. You know. It's such a good sentence. Oh, it took me longer to read that whole thing. And I was a little bit like, I kind of frowned a little bit after reading it. I'm like, all right, got it. It's, I guess. Well, he, listen, you know, I mean, obviously, when, the, when you're trying to do A Night Before Christmas, uh, you got to get that language in there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, for a 2084 um, advent calendar, I did to Judge Dread A Night Before Christmas um, poem one year. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's got its own meter. You got to pay attention to it and stuff like that. You know, this this other podcast I listened to where they read dumb stuff on the internet had one episode read that was just people in various weird forums trying to do a night a, a night before Christmas poems. And who is often not very good. Folks. Oh, my God. They got to stay They're away funny. from this night before Christmas uh, poetry. It's, it's not as easy as you, as you think it'd be. Fox for sure. Mm. And hey, speaking out of speaking of staying out of cursed places. Oh my god. Oh my god. Shambhala. Stay out of Shambhala. Thrill six. Anderson side division. <sighs> it's so fucking good, Conrad. This one is pretty nice. It's yeah. so the best thing. Ah. Uh. Scripture about Alan Grant, art about Arthur Ranson, learning about Steve Potter. Of course, this thr- this prestige thrill has credit pages. This time, a close-up of Anderson and the non-eagle shoulder pad of the Drudge uniform with the purple background. Mm. Last time, Mega City 1 side judges Dr. Rickard and Judge Anderson, along with East Meg 2 side judges like Chenko and Amasov, arrived at an ancient Tibetan monastery complete with golden roofs. But soon it fades away into a more current ruin. The original one was just an astral projection for how mm-hmm. great it once was. But something must have projected it, so let's get investigating. Doubt it's these crazy-ass cavemen people. Mm. The place is massive, though it feels like a tomb full of giant statues of Buddhas with three eyes and various Fuck. sort of like uh, lions and you know dogs and various other a- Asian statue motifs. But suddenly, the Darrows, yeah. those weird Agarthy people. Gonna jump at you. Do a do a bite. That's right. They're everywhere and attacking our team. Amasov is jumped by one and shouts something maybe in Russian, but my translator app couldn't handle it. Um, <laughs> Anderson shoots the thing off Amasov, but he's been bitten on the neck. The judges go to run when they meet another whole company of Darrows. This one led by a man in what looks like Tibetan monk robes, mm. kind of. They've got kind of that... Um, like sort of saffron yellow yeah. and like dark orange kind of color to them, orange brownish color to them. He opens his hand and fires an energy beam at the side. Not good. Yeah. The team tries to run, heading upstairs, but they're trapped. Then Anderson says to hold fire because the Darrows have stopped attacking. It seems the crew have found their way to a strange door covered in various Ugh. death symbols with a horrible psychic feeling coming from it. 
really just wouldn't go in there. I mean, it seems like they're not going to come after you where you're standing. But that's only a matter of time. You know, they're surrounded by enemies. Their guns are low on ammo. So there's really no choice but to go through the ominous door. God, it mm, real creepy. Definitely. A pensive Anderson looks around a corner in the title page. The team goes down this corridor. They find it lit by luminescent fungus, like in the lesson of Agartha, and also full of dead bodies and various levels of decay. Suddenly, they come under psychic attack. And she's in hell. Images. Every horror. Yeah, definitely. Images of death and destruction. We see all the dark judges and even more monsters that fill Anderson's mind as a strange skull idol seems to rip the flesh from off her head and then smash her skull between its teeth. God damn. It's cool. She comes awake as Amasov is shouting her name in Russian. It's phonetic, Mm. I think, or something like that. Um, They're in a dead end. Which triggered a, a side trap of some kind, though Anderson was most affected by it. It seems to be protecting the ancient corpse of a dead body dressed as a monk in an alcove mm. here. His body is clearly like mummified and ancient, maybe a thousand years old, but they still detect a spark of life within him. It's all weird to come all this way, facing all this danger, all leading to this one man. Right. Someone's going to have to go in and see what's going on. And we know exactly who that is. And it's clearly up to Anderson. Yeah, listen, the olds are too old for it. And Amasov's mind is messed up by the uh, by the Darrow bite. Mm-hmm. She mind melds with the monk and finds herself naked in a weird dreamscape with a giant young, like, um, um, a giant young, uh, like, boy's head in, like, a Tibetan crown floating in front of her. Someone's hitting that DMT pretty hard. Mmm. Ayahuasca. Mm. The credit card is Anderson profile among a bunch of Russian words. Mm. The golden head in a crown, again, a headdress thing, like, definitely sort of something from, like, Thai culture. Grows from baby to old man as they explain what's going on. He's the king of the world and keeper of the gateway between the material and the spiritual. This golden web that he holds is now full of darkness caused by the Darrow and their real energy, which is popping up all over. God Jesus. damn it. Um, they're causing all these disasters as they get stronger and prepare to destroy the earth. When he dies, it'll all be over. And he shows Anderson a view of what that will be. Back in reality, Anderson's been mind-melding for 10 minutes and the rest of the crew is getting worried. Amasov goes to, like, touch her or something, but gets pulled back. Like, if you touch her, you'll mess up her mind and won't she be able to find her way back? Jesus. Meanwhile, Amasov's bite won't stop throbbing and we see that sort of both the scar tissue Ugh. from the bite has extended beyond the, the, the bandage yeah, it's on his real, neck. Yeah, it's and not that, looking good. Yeah, and that his band and that the bandage itself is completely soaked through with blood. The image of the future isn't great. We see um, basically um, a, a giant image of uh, with a yama, the um, age, the uh, like, like like Chinese Buddhist um, god of uh, destruction, mm-hmm. uh, crawling over the page as Darrow's attack Mega City One and just kill everybody. Yeah, Jesus. No, no, no matter what their technology is, it's no match for their uh, real energy and stuff. Mm-hmm. The Darrows <clears throat> will inherit the earth unless a sacrifice is made. And there must be a death to allow the king to live on. But who? He did not know until now. 
So the final credit card is a shadowy Anderson standing in the middle of a big gear, sort of a larger system. And this is part 12. In the real world, Amosov goes mad and attacks Lychenko and Rickard. Mm. He's ripping their throats out with his teeth when Jesus. Anderson comes awake. The Darabite has, has infected him. He can't stop himself. He goes to attack Anderson, and we see that the scar tissue from the bite has now spread like all the way to his like lower jaw, basically. Yeah. Um, and so she has no choice but to pull her lawgiver and shoot him. As he dies, he says he loved her and then falls to silence, dying in her arms. Anderson weeps. All of her friends have been killed. So there's your damn sacrifice. She points her gun at the king, but then the old body starts to glow. A massive explosion rips through Shambhala, scattering the darrow and, and burying them under massive amounts of rubble. The golden web reconnects and heals. The power of love is, is uh, protecting it, like giving water to your thirsty brother. And a new star there's a new star in the east, and the world is saved. Anderson walks out of the temple. She's sort of got like her, um, I like this image actually of her walking out mm. with like carrying her coat kind of behind her and stuff. Yeah. Of just like, it feels very like, like, I don't know, like, like, like powerful or something. Yeah. I don't know. Like she's sort of like dusting the, the, or, 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 you know, brushing the dust off her shoulders from this or something mm. like that, but still feeling grief and stuff. Um, she walks out of the temple past the bodies of the dead Darrow. She doesn't believe any of it. No ancient man at the roof of the world that keeps the world turning. No evil underground race. No stars that shine in the sky when loved ones die. And she looks up and sees next to the to, and sees another star next to Corey's and cries once more. Mm. The end. Fucking a man. <laughs> it was so it's a good fucking, one, right? It was so fucking sad. Like it's just that whole last like Seven Eleven was just so rough. Definitely. <sighs> No, there's definitely some real some real feelings in here and really sort of adding um, this emotional element. Like, like, like this one's the real kickoff mm. of these more emotional Anderson stories, I think. I, well, I guess, I mean, I don't know. There's like, just maybe, no justice maybe, in, in her world, man. Yeah, definitely. Maybe Corey's death did, I guess, but this one definitely does. Of just sort oh, of just, like, yeah. like these stories will have a different tone going forward. Yeah, man. I mean, if it's anything like that, that's that was fantastic. That, that I mean, obviously, like you know, we'll get into it, but this is clearly still my top. Um, yeah, no, definitely a lot of fun. Definitely making you, even over a brief time, making you feel like like these characters and feel really bad when bad stuff happens to them. For sure, yeah, it very much likes to kick you in the dick and remind you that you're in the world of the mega cities. You know, absolutely. Hey, listen, no one's happy for anybody. You know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, um, <sighs> I should say, Anders, this is the end of this story, but Anderson will be back with a new story uh, next Prague. So we're just getting some Anderson stuff in here. Okay. And with that, oh my gosh, we finished Prague 708 to 711 and December of 1990. Buddy, what are your top and bottom thrills? Holy shit, man. I mean, I I, I got to tell you, top is obviously Shambhala. I, it was for mm. all of the reasons. It was so fucking good. I, I can't imagine anyone not liking this comic. Uh, just <laughs> from top to bottom, the thing was just blew me out of the water. Uh, nice. In terms of bottom... I mean, I, it's like Time Flies would be like kind of in my sights if it wasn't for like just great art and like some good writing. It was just like not, it wasn't clicking with me, but Jesus Christ, Junker. 
<laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, hey, I'm the most unlikable man with the ugliest, horniest monkey and uh, a plot that just really, God, ripped right off of, like, fucking yeah. Star Wars. <clears throat> Which is fine. I mean, I you know, I'm not going to shit on the people who work on it necessarily. It's just like, Jesus, Junker is bad. Mm. Um, but with that, Conrad, what are your top modern thrills, buddy? Man, I'm feeling very convinced by you. Junker's lame and derivative. Anderson's inventive and interesting. So I feel like this is going to be a solidarity month, yes, buddy. Going solidarity. Into, the, into the spinnies with some solidarity, friend. Oh, love it. Oh, yeah. Mm, feels so good. Yeah, buddy. Oh, man. All right. Very business-like episode here. Love it. Um, <laughs> I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Space Spinner 2000 on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site, spacespinner2000.com. Feel free to contact us at spacespinner2000 at gmail.com. 2004 is our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages on Twitter. We're at Space Spinner 2K. Everything else, you look up Space Spinner 2000. You find us. Conrad and Fox. Come on, you mook. Find us. Yeah. This show is brought to you by Steve Green and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd really appreciate it. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Cradaline. That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and receive a ton of excellent rewards, including advanced episodes, coverage of modern 2000 AD in the magazine, and monthly Q&As with your boys, Fox and Conrad. Oh, yeah. Then come back on Friday for our coverage of the 2080 Winter Special. And then next week, it's Awards Week. Yeah. Definitely. We'll be reviewing the year with both the Spinnies and the brand new magazine review show, The Maggies. Ooh. For both shows, I'd love to get your nominations of your favorite art writing overall thrill month and mvp of 20 of uh of a uh, 1990 and 2000 ad as well as your favorite year so far maybe just counting from 97 to 90 if you want to and then similar ones for the magazine separate one nominations for both the prog and the meg separately anyway buddy because we're splitting up these shows that means the era of golden tuxedo is o- tuxedos is over Ooh. and instead we'll be putting on sapphire blue tuxedos Ooh. and we'll see you all there in the in in the in a big mag there ruby red Ooh, it's very Ooh, nice that's very so, nice mid-generation pokemon going on <laughs> but until then <laughs> I'm Conrad East Fox, and we are Space Fitter 2000. Splendid. Splendid.